Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee. I'm one of the editorial board members. And because March is Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month, I'll be interviewing several myeloma experts across the country to discuss important topics in myeloma for both patients and providers that we often don't talk about as much. Today, it's my honor to speak with Dr. Manny Mohyuddin, uh, who is assistant professor at the University of Utah Huntsman Cancer Center, who is an expert in clinical trial design and uh, patient endpoints as they pertain to clinical trials in myeloma. Uh, Dr. Mohyuddin, very nice to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. I would not consider myself an expert, but thank you for those kind words. Of course. Well, I think you're taking on a topic that I think is very important to all of us. And uh, in terms of, you know, clinical trials and making sure that the clinical trial results are as relevant to our patients as they can be, it's something that I think I, we, I just haven't, I don't know of anyone who's really taken on this issue with as much passion as you have. So maybe my first question I can ask you is just when you see a clinical trial in multiple myeloma that's published, or let's say if you're advising a patient or patient advocate uh, who's like reviewing a trial that just got published in some journal somewhere, what are some things that go through your mind when you're reviewing clinical trial in terms of, you know, things that make a trial good, things that make it not so good, that make it relevant to patients or not so much or so forth? What's your kind of rubric for going through a clinical trial? Right. So that's such a great question. So I guess I have a different rubric and a different set of standards for, you know, a randomized phase three or even a large randomized phase two trial compared to, you know, a smaller trial. But let's say it is it is a, a randomized trial. Um, and so, you know, one of the first things that I look at is like, what is the question, you know, being asked and what is the study powered to show? Uh, so obviously what the endpoint is, is, is very relevant. Um, and, and we can talk more about this, but the endpoint, you know, generally in myeloma is, is progression-free survival or, or a response or response rate, um, very rarely is it overall survival. So obviously that is that is one important thing. The second thing um, that I look at is, um, you know, what is it being compared to, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of context that goes into that because, you know, the one of the unfortunate reality of our, our clinical trials with myeloma is we don't know how to sequence therapies and we don't know amongst all the options that we have, what is the best to use, right? So I'll give you an example. Okay like when patients relapse, right? Let's say they got VRD and they relapse. We have so many different trials of three versus two drugs that, that have shown that three drugs is better for the endpoint being studied, right? But we have zero trials that compare, you know, different three versus three drug regimens at, uh, at first relapse. So it sort of does put us in a fix where we have all of these different options. And, um, you know, I don't personally get excited if I see long-term follow-up of, an, you know, a three versus two, or if I see a new three versus two, uh, you know, design for first relapse. So obviously what the control arm is, is very, very pertinent and very, very relevant. Um, and there's a lot of caveats that, that, that go into that, which we can spend a lot of time talking about. And then, it, it is also very important to consider, you know, what the what the inclusion criteria are, um, and your know, myeloma is a very heterogeneous disease, right? Um, so sometimes the inclusion criteria will be in, will will 
will be in such a way that you know a certain disease biology will be excluded um, and sometimes it's not even written in the inclusion criteria but just how the trial is designed you know disincentivizes people from putting certain patients on it um, so looking at the patient characteristics of what sort of patients were enrolled and looking at the inclusion criteria on what sort of patients they were intending to enroll is very important in helping us sort of contextualize what the what the benefit is and then, you know, there are a few things that I feel like our field doesn't emphasize enough, but, you know, post-protocol therapy is also particularly important and a topic that's close to my heart. There is attrition in myeloma, and I do recognize that, you know, giving good treatments up front make, is, is important and makes a difference. But there's also a problem that in our clinical trials, when people do progress, they don't get, you know, standard treatments and a standard meaning you know what could have been given in the in the us where the company is trying to seek approval for um and th this becomes particularly important in endpoint when it comes to you know overall survival because that's very dependent on what sort of therapy is given so you know that this is this by no means is an exhaustive list of the things that i look at uh, but it's definitely some starting points um and we can sort of go go on about this for yeah. a long well, and I guess I'll ask, you know, because you're exactly right about the protocol therapy, because, you know, the way that I've learned to understand it, for example, with daratumumab or a CD38 antibody, really anything that you shouldn't be testing, giving it versus not giving it at all, you really should be giving it now versus giving it later. Is that kind of a good way of approaching things in a randomized trial? So that is an excellent question. So when a drug is already proven to be a effective in the relapsed refractory setting, and daratumumab undoubtedly is effective in that setting, the relevant question to ask becomes, is it better to give this drug earlier versus is it better to give it later? The question should not be, is it better to give this drug early versus not at all? All right. So, and what unfortunately has happened in, in several you know, myeloma trials looking at daratumumab up front is these trials ran after we knew daratumumab was effective. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would think, and it's within the sponsor's ability to give daratumumab upon progression, right? So the trials should have been dara at newly in the newly diagnosed setting versus daratumumab, um, you know, at relapse, right? Like in the protocol, not per <laughs> investigator discretion. Exactly. And... With, okay, with, right. with guaranteed access to those patients who progressed and were still alive and still eligible for, for receiving treatment. So that's what should have been done. But unfortunately, that's not what was done. Um, if you look at, for example, the Alcyone trial, which is DARA, Velcade, Melphalan, Prednisone versus Velcade, Melphalan, Prednisone, only about 10% of patients who progressed on Velcade, Melphalan, Prednisone received daratumumab, which is a very dismally low number. Um, and even if you look at the Maya trial, which is perhaps I would argue more relevant to the United States, which compared Revlimid and Dexamethasone to daratumumab, Revlimid and Dexamethasone, the Revlimid, Dexamethasone arm when patients progressed, you know, the, the top three most commonly used regimens at progression were all non-DERA containing um, uh, regimens. And the other interesting thing is um, we got an overall survival advantage. So we, we saw that so early, right? Like we got an overall survival advantage so quickly for these newly diagnosed trials, but we still haven't had published results showing and overall survival advantage in the relapse refractory setting. That's crazy. You'd think that you'd see an advantage much earlier. And all of this just boils down to post-protocol therapy because in Pollux and Castor, which is the trials of daratumumab in relapse refractory setting, there was very high crossover. They found out that the drug worked 
So they gave it to, to the control arm upon progression. So I have not been able to come up with a good answer for why Janssen didn't really do that in the newly diagnosed setting, right? Um, so it's a very complicated topic. And I think the answers to this are, um, are, are complicated as well, right? Like I think the solutions to this are complicated and many people can come up with many different excuses. What I, how I think about this is that the problem is very simple. Even if the answer is complicated, it's important to recognize the problem. The problem is that our patients, you know, don't get the therapy that they could have gotten upon progression in these clinical trials, because as a field, we historically have been agnostic to post-protocol therapy. And a perfect example, nobody doubts how good BRD is, right? Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone, like, I mean, it is, it has been our de facto standard. Exactly. But just, I'm just giving you an example of our, you know, our, how agnostic we are towards post-protocol therapy is that when the long-term follow-up of this trial was published, so there was a separate paper looking at long-term follow-up. Um, it didn't have a very simple basic fact uh, about how many people got velcade upon progression. Mm-hmm. So how many people in the, in the Revlimid dexamethasone arm got velcade upon progression? So nobody, so that was nowhere in the supplement. I looked really hard before I, you know, went public with this fact in my research paper, but like nobody knows. Um, so, you know, as a field, like the peer reviewers or the editors, or even if maybe it wasn't even collected, like it just goes to show that we didn't really, you know, as a field, it's not a priority for us. Um, so I am passionate about raising awareness for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm hopefully there's a piece that will come out, but I feel like, um, you know, there are a lot of vulnerable populations in, in oncology, right? Like, you know, racial minorities, um, and you know, there's so much work that needs to be done, uh, to improve outcomes for those patients and to level the playing field. Right. And there's like centuries and decades of, um, of injustices and that we have to correct. Right. But I also think that, you know, the patients on control arm of clinical trials are also a vulnerable population that, you know, all of our recent, um, you know, all of the bureaucracy that, that has evolved, the IRB, all of those things, I feel like despite all of that bureaucracy, those patients remain vulnerable. And I feel like not enough people talk about their rights and, um, and, you know, like advocating for them. So I would like to consider myself an advocate for all patients, uh, but especially those that are on the control arm of randomized trials that uh, get overlooked when it comes to what the control arm is getting and what post-protocol therapy they get. I get afterwards. I totally agree. And, and, if that's ex- and again, you are the expert in this topic and you have written and published extensively on it. So thank you. Um, let me pivot to something you briefly touched on. Another one of your papers was just about endpoints. Um, you know, I think myeloma is unique among malignancies, at least in my mind, that you know, our, our endpoints are not just radiographically based. They are very complicated measures of, you know, plasma protein surrogates and what the myeloma cells are doing and so forth. Um, overall survival is overall survival, but it's not what we typically use. Can you talk through what your thoughts are, again, for not just myeloma experts, but for other healthcare providers, for patients that are looking at a trial like this or an ongoing trial, what to make of PFS, time to next treatment, overall response rate and so forth? And do your thoughts about these surrogates or putative surrogates depend based on the type of trial you're looking at? Right. That's such a great question with so many different aspects to that answer. So, 
you know, historically the gold standard, um, and that's what we've been taught, and that's what what I very strongly believe is that our treatments should make people live better or live longer. Live longer meaning the treatment should prolong overall survival, and live better meaning that it should improve quality of life. Now, the you know, at first thought, you think that if a treatment improves progression-free survival which is defined as, you know, as the time from trial initiation to um, either when the disease progresses, right? And that's based arbitrarily on, you know, a certain M protein value going up or light chains going up. Or so a time from, from time from treatment initiation to progression or death, right? Whatever the cause of death is. So you would think that a treatment that delays progression improves quality of life but I think that it's it's a lot more complicated than that. And this has been shown across other cancers as well that, you know, just delaying progression doesn't necessarily mean that it also improves quality of life. But, and that in part reflects, you know, the arbitrary cutoffs that we have. I'm really glad that we have uniform definitions of response and progression, but we have to recognize that they are arbitrary. And, you know, when you move from a stable disease to, you know, a, a partial response, and there's nothing magical about that, that that would make a patient feel better. So having understood that the historical gold standard is overall survival and quality of life, we also have to recognize that overall survival takes a long, long time. And um, as much as I advocate for overall survival, I do recognize that for newly diagnosed myeloma, um, if you you want to design a certain intervention, it's going to take a really, really long time to get to your median, right? If you are like, you know, if you're looking at a median over survival of, you know, seven, eight, 10 years, that's a really, really long time to wait. So I recognize that there is a need for, for surrogate endpoints that um, will give us quicker answers. I also recognize that industry is heavily incentivized to, to have those endpoints and get their products earlier. I also recognize right. that endpoints like progression-free survival, which I just defined earlier, or response rate or you know, measurable residual disease, which is a highly sensitive indicator of how many, you know, how much cancer is left behind. So none of these basically account for post-protocol therapy, which is important in myeloma where you, you know, people can live through multiple lines of therapy. So it's a complicated situation. So in newly diagnosed myeloma, I recognize that um, it is impractical at times to use overall survival and surrogates are needed. But I think it's also important to recognize that these surrogates are, are imperfect. And there are high profile examples where, you know, improvement in a surrogate has not led to, you know, improvement in, um, in overall survival, in, in overall survival. So it's a tough question. And, um, I recognize that in newly diagnosed settings, you know, overall survival may not be um, practical. Now, if you look at, you know, patients with heavily relapsed refractory disease, you know, it, it's interesting and it's, it's almost paradoxical that, you know, these papers that, you know, that they're testing heavily relapsed refractory patients, they're going to cite they, a, a study that will that will say that you know their survival for this patient population is less than a year, but at the same time they're not going to use an overall survival endpoint, and I think that is a little is a little problematic. I do think that for heavily relapsed refractory disease where you know people have had multiple lines of treatment, I think overall survival is is practical. The other thing is that when you're talking about sequencing treatments, I think that you should either have overall survival or something called PFS2, 
which is basically PFS1, which I've already described, plus the time to the second progression or death. So it accounts for what treatment is given afterwards. So I think that when we're talking about sequencing or bringing a treatment up earlier, I think PFS2 is practical as well. And just to go segue to your earlier point about post protocol therapy, theoretically, if patients had access to the experimental drug after progression, PFS2 would account for that. Right, exactly. And then, you know, I see there's a lot of excitement about MRD. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am extremely excited about, you know, using MRD to adapt treatment because we've historically treated myeloma like pretty much the same, right? Whether you were an exceptional responder or whether you, you know, responded just a little bit, you were treated the same with the same regimen for the same duration of therapy. So using MRD, measurable residual disease, to adapt treatment um, is really, really exciting. And I love the trials that we have ongoing uh, looking at that, you know, in, in maintenance strategies, et cetera. But I think that there are a lot of problems when MRD becomes the, the sole goal or the sole objective of, mm-hmm. of treatment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some high profile examples and you could argue that the MRD from a decade ago is not the MRD of today. That's true. But there are some high profile examples like, you know, we always quote the IFM 2009 trial, which I know you love as well, and you talk a lot about as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a trial of, um, you know, Velcade Revlimid Dex plus autologous transplant um, upfront versus Velcade Revlimid Dex Methson. Everybody got Revlimid maintenance. So basically, it was a, it was a comparison of, you know, tra- using transplant upfront or not. And the important thing to know is that, you know, 78% of patients that didn't get transplant upfront got transplant later. Okay. So what the trial ended up becoming was um, early transplant versus late transplant. transplant. Right? Exactly right. And I would argue that's what DARE tumor trials should have been as well, right? Early DARA versus later DARA. But, but getting back to the point, so in this trial, all right, there was an improvement in progression-free survival. And if the MRD of that time, which is not the MRD of today, um, there was actually much more MRD negativity in in the patients who received transplant. transplant. But the overall survival at the, I think the eight-year mark was similar between both arms. So, you know, it sort of goes to show that, you know, in a disease like myeloma, especially for fitter young patients who may go through, you know, other kinds of therapy, um, you know, just having more MRD negativity doesn't translate to survival. You could argue that, you know, if we're, if we're looking at curative strategies for myeloma, right, like your best chance at curing is, upfront and maybe quads plus transplant will make the difference where, and, and maybe we'll have a better overall survival and maybe the increased MRD negativity in this setting with more sensitive MRD negativities will translate to overall survival. But I think that there are a lot of assumptions here and, um, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm jumping fully on this bandwagon and I, I just want us to recognize that there are a lot of assumptions. And I think a historical perspective of myeloma would prove that, surrogates have not always translated to um, to improved outcomes. And then we all know this, but it's always important to highlight there's some high profile examples in the relapse refractory setting where drugs have improved progression-free survival, but worsened overall survival. Venetoclax uh, in the Bellini trial being one example, um, and then Melfufen more recently in the Ocean trial being another example. So Again, I am not saying that we need to make OS the endpoint for everything, but I think we need to recognize the imperfections of some of our endpoints, and we need to call things for what they are and not overhype um, 
MRD or overhyped PFS. Uh, so I just want to keep things real and want us to be aware of these limitations. Totally agreed. Um, and I com- agreed on all fronts. Um, one last point, the final question I'll ask kind of relates to, you described MRD in kind of two ways. One is an endpoint, as you talked about and seeing as a surrogate for overall survival. And then you also touched upon you know, what I would call MRD as a middle point, you know, using MRD to decide to, to intensify or de-intensify treatment. You mentioned, for example, quasi and transplant. I think the MASTER trial is a good example of that, albeit single arm. Um, what studies are you excited about that are either currently ongoing or planning to, to launch soon in terms of using MRD uh, to intensify or de-intensify treatment and why? For sure. That's such a great question. So the trials that I'm most excited about use MRD to de-escalate treatment for for, for patients who are responding really well. Mm-hmm. So one of the examples for that in the maintenance setting is, um, is the dramatic trial, where after two years of maintenance therapy with either Revlimid or DARE to MAB or Revlimid, depending on what arm you're randomized to, for patients that are MRD negative, uh, they can be randomized to, to be put off treatment or continue on, on therapy. So that is really exciting. Within a randomized trial where you're following these patients closely, you're getting answers that will help all of humanity, you're able to take people who are MRD negative off treatment, whereas the current, stand, current standard of care in the United States is that you know patients get Revlimid long-term after, after a transplant. So I'm incredibly excited about that. The other thing that I'm incredibly excited about is for patients who achieve a really deep response with induction therapy, right? So you give them quad and um, they become MRD negative. Can we forego an autologous transplant for that patient population? There are two trials that are looking at this. One is the MASTER-2 trial, which will enroll in the United States. And then the other is the IFM-2020 or the MIDAS trial in, um, in France. And both trials are basically, they are, they're, asked, they're asking multiple questions. Mm-hmm. And I may not agree with all of the, the arms being used for all of these trials. But the one thing I love about, about, about both these trials is that after induction for people who are MRD negative, they're you know randomized to either a transplant-based strategy or just additional cycles of consolidation uh, therapy without a transplant. So that like will answer really important questions about can we you know skip an autologous transplant, not subject our patients to the toxicity of high-dose chemotherapy if they're responding deeply. Um, and I'm very excited about that. I am a lot more wary about using MRD to escalate treatment, to give more treatment for people who are still MRD positive. But I am very excited about, you know, de-escalating treatment for people who are MRD negative. That's a very good nuance. And that's that's an excellent point. Because instead of going above the standard of care, you're trying to find people where you can keep them in a good spot, but avoid those toxicities. Um, and the one last plug I'll add for the dramatic study. So it's also, if you, if any of the readers look online, it's SWOG 1803. So it's sponsored by the Southwest Oncology Group. But I think it's a good example of, you know, scientific investigators, clinicians coming together to answer a question like this with multiple randomizations that I think will, as you said, help all of humanity and most especially help us figure out what to do with our patients. Exactly. For sure. Great. Um, any any closing uh, thoughts you have or anything else you wanted to to add? Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I think it's a very exciting time for you know young investigators like us to be in this field. 
And um, I think, you know, there, there are a lot of things to look forward to. There are also a lot of things that are hyped up. So it's important to be, to be real and mindful about, about our interventions. But I, you know, despite, you know, I keep saying that I have to be real and not get hyped up, but it is, I'll admit that it is an exciting time to be a myeloma doctor and it's a privilege to take care of our patients and be able to offer them these trials and all these exciting interventions. Absolutely. Thanks again for everything, Dr. Mohyuddin. Pleasure to speak with you. And again, thank you all for listening to this uh, show for Oncology Data Advisor. Thanks again. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.